You are now listening to Doc Fermento Discovers the World, episode, I don't know, 59 maybe? You're already listening, I don't know if the number counts, matters, or whatever. Here I have a conversation with Jamie Scott. Uh, he goes by That Paleo Guy online. He's thatpaleoguy.com and uh, That Paleo Guy on Twitter. He has a private account there, so you may or may not have access. Uh, if you do, you're fortunate. I love his Twitter um, feed. It's pretty fantastic. You know, I haven't really covered paleo too much on this show, and I thought Jamie would be the right guy for that. Um, he's very interesting. He's a very curious case. This is a person who calls himself a misanthrope and an admitted introvert. So how do you balance that? Uh, how do you work with people? How do you work in you know social networking, social media, and directly with clients in health, nutrition, and improving and optimizing human performance? You know. So I, I think he's extremely interesting guy. Um, Jimmy has a few degrees in uh, sports medicine, exercise science, human nutrition postgraduate work in sports and exercise medicine and nutritional medicine so he knows a few things hello how are we going all right how are we doing that better yeah, you sound uh, like you're out there somewhere. Uh, I'm down at the bottom of the planet, so I should sound a little bit distant. Okay. <laughs> the bottom of the planet. Near enough. Not, not quite. Not quite home. Home is a little bit more bottom than what Australia is. All right, let's see if um, maybe you can get a little closer to the mic, maybe. Is that possible? Yeah, has has that. But, uh, that sounds closer? good. That sounds good. Okay. Yeah, what am I I'll throw the headphones in so I might stop a bit of feedback. So. Okay. How's that? You sound pretty good. Very good. You got. I've got a very clear line with you. So. Excellent. Well, the people want to hear you, not me. Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you might have an audience of three, I think, if you're lucky. Uh, that that's pretty good. <clears throat> I wouldn't complain about that. Oh, I'm, I'm actually still fiddling around with my machine. That's why I'm not quite focused yet, but I'm almost there. No worries, no worries. Just just when you're ready to roll. All right, so welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Very unexpected. Oh uh, yeah, well I can't get enough. You know, you're. Tw- I only know you from Twitter, really. And um, I, I, I always stuff. I always complain at you because you have a private account and I can't retweet you. I want to retweet every tweet you send. So <laughs> uh, I think that says more about you than it does me, Brian. To be to be fair, there's not much excitement in my tweets. To be honest, I, I don't know. They're they're biting. They are. Uh, I'm probably a lot more cutting on Twitter than I am in real life. But yeah, I, well, that's uh, yep, that's me to a T. Yeah. So what happened? Uh, 
Where, do, where does this biting nature come from? Where does this, uh, you look, you're like a, a, a warrior against dogma, it seems. Uh, I just don't like people, to be honest. <laughs> uh, can't make it more complex than what it is. Um, I, I guess I'm someone who gets very, very frustrated by, as you say, as you say some of the, the dogma that's out there, some of the stupidity that's, that's out there. Um, and I think me releasing some of that frustration, venting on Twitter is probably a, a safer way to go than uh, going postal down at the local mall or something along those lines. Yeah, t- Twitter's a good um, outlet for that because it just flows by and you can just send a thought out. It's not like you have to compose a blog you know, an entire blog post. And and to be fair, I, I mean, I probably started out in terms of any sort of recognition from, from my blog posts, and uh, I probably spend far too much time ranting and raving on Twitter than I, I do actually composing uh, some sort of semblance of a, a sane blog post, and I should probably spend far, more t- uh, far much more time uh, writing those blog posts than ranting on Twitter. But uh, 140 characters to get something out of your system can be quite cathartic sometimes. Yeah, I love it. It's my favorite uh, mechanism. I probably am completely addicted to it, though. I, I, I think probably to my detriment, I, I am too. It's, uh, but it, it's a discussion that uh, a few of us have had behind the scenes um, recently with regard to Twitter and uh, on, online socializing in general. Uh, versus doing it in in real life and whilst we get a good understanding and and we actively promote uh, face-to-face socialization and the the benefits that go with it a lot of us tend to find ourselves quite isolated in terms of being able to readily socialize people who hold the same outlooks on life the same values uh, all those sorts of things that that make good socialization and good friendships worthwhile and, and I guess probably when you get to a, a certain age and I'm, I'm very much at that age now where you've, you've been burned in a few friendships in the past um, you, you kind of are a little bit more hesitant just to kind of get involved with uh, with your neighbor or, or someone down the road so you're, you're a little bit more picky and choosy so um, I've, I've tended to find a, a bit of an online community um, both in the, the states here in Australia and, and back home in New Zealand that you can kind of share and vent and and uh, hold the same sort of values with but uh, unfortunately due to geography um, it's, it's had to be uh, isolated to a, a largely an online community. So you, you find the same thing in um, your local community there whether you're in Australia or New Zealand that the you know the standard narrative the common dialogue um, with the people is just not pleasing to you? It just doesn't meet your needs? No, and I'm, I'm probably going to sound really up myself, which I probably am to a fair degree, but um, I just find most people quite superficial in terms of how they run themselves on a, a day-to-day basis, the, the things that they think about, the things that concern them. Um, maybe, and, and I mean, the common denominator in, in all of my dealings with life is me. Um, so I, I think it's more of a fault with me than it is with others. But, um, yeah, I, I just kind of struggle to relate to, you know, everyday people in an everyday world. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I found found people in this online community, I mean, just you, yourself included, who um, 
uh, tend to kind of resonate with me with some of the things that they say. And it's not to say that uh, I agree with absolutely everything that uh, everyone says on Twitter or on their blogs or, or whatever else. But uh, I, I think there's a there's a few people kind of spread across this planet who I would dearly love to have um, a lot closer to me, so that I, I can go and drag them down to a cafe and, and buy them a coffee and. Uh, and bitch about the world with them, but uh, that just doesn't happen. So, Twitter's the next best thing for me, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, are you you're a bit of an introvert by nature? Uh, a bit, um, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, <laughs> that, that might be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, I I can be sociable and I can I can play the game, and probably I'm a lot better at it now than what I was ten years ago, twenty years ago. As, as a very, I was a, very much a shy introvert probably through uh, my teens and 20s uh, but, but with age you, you get a bit of, a bit of confidence so I'm probably more a, a confident introvert now I'm quite happy to go out and, and be around people but they just exhaust me no end and I get to the point where I have to step away I, I have to walk away and leave people alone for hours days weeks I find it interesting. Yeah, I find that interesting because you're um, an avid cyclist, and that um, that really speaks to a, a certain personality, I would think. Um, I'm an avid cyclist in that I love being out on my bike. I love the, the freedom. I, I think it the the cycling's a means to me being by myself and being with my own thoughts. It's it's a means to health. I mean, I love. I love all the health aspects that, that go with it, of, of course. Um, I love the speed aspects. Um, I mean, I, I, I just being back home in the, the city that I'm from, you used to be able to go and ride up in the hills and, and ride down at a great rate of knots, knowing that if you come off, that was probably it. Um, it it's an avenue to, to escape. It's a, it's a means to go out and see, see nature, observe the world from a, a different perspective where you're not really having to kind of battle traffic and, and cars and those sorts of things. So um, I, I don't I do not do cycling for the social aspect of it. I'm not a – I gave up racing ages ago. I don't like sitting in bunches of people. I don't like hanging around with other cyclists and talking about cycling and, and those sorts of things. But I love my bike. I, I love everything that go, goes with it. So I, I count myself as an avid cyclist from that perspective rather than um, what most people would probably think of a cyclist being. And so has the the cycling does that did that lead to you pursuing um, you know, sports medicine and nutrition? Uh, not not particularly. It's, it's always been a passion. I mean, I've geez, I've owned a bike since I was three years old. I think four years old, probably at the outside. And I'm coming up to forty now, so there hasn't been a, a day in my life where I haven't had a bike involved with it. So it's always been something. It's been again. It's been my means of escape. So through through my teens, where you know, kind of going through the, the troubled teens phase, you could just jump on your bike and go and run away. Um, so it, it wasn't really a, an avenue to um, my involvement with sports, sports medicine, or exercise. But um, I, I guess I've always been a, a fairly uh, active person. I, I just I think I was fortunate to grow up in a a time and a place in New Zealand where it was just what you did. You didn't kind of think about any sort of form of activity or exercise or anything else. But um, And as, as I went through my high school years trying to decide what I was going to do with a career, uh, it, it eventually all roads kind of led towards 
being involved in something to do with with health and exercise and nutrition and, and medicine. And it, initially, I wanted to become a doctor, but uh, I certainly wasn't anywhere near bright enough at an academic level to um, to go that that route. So, ended up studying exercise physiology, nutrition, sports medicine, and it, it just happens that with cycling being something that I've been very passionate about. I've been able to apply it to you know, myself and, and many others over, over the years. It's probably the main sport um, in which I've applied a lot of my knowledge uh, in that, that area. But uh, yeah, my, my personal cycling has kind of probably driven me down that pathway. Mm-hmm. And so, in studying sports medicine, is there a big focus on nutrition? And was that nutrition advice? Um, did you find it? Um, how should I say, accurate? <laughs> uh, as, as far as the sports medicine side of this, I mean, I started out uh, with a, my undergraduate, first undergraduate degree was in um, exercise science. And, and and part of that was a, a sports medicine paper. Um, and yes, there's, there's compared to the, the rest of the medical field, there's a very, very good level of acknowledgement that Nutrition is, is very important, and, um, and and again, probably compared to the wider medical field, there's this big acknowledgement and big push within sports medicine that you are part of a, a multidisciplinary team. That the sports medicine physician, uh, which I'm certainly not, um, sports medicine physician is only one part of a, a wider team, which includes nutritionists and exercise trainers and, and so on and so forth. Um, as far as the nutrition element that goes with sports medicine i think they teach more of it than uh what they do in, in mainstream medicine but it's still not particularly extensive and, and they very much defer to people who have specialized uh in, in that area um, i got probably two years into uh, a four-year exercise science degree uh, and, and we covered a little bit of nutrition and, and i realized early in the piece how important nutrition was to the overall health picture um, and how important it would be in terms of what I wanted to do with my career. So I ended up picking up uh, an, another undergraduate degree, a, a Bachelor of Science majoring in human nutrition uh, as a result of that. And and I was very much conventionally trained. I mean, we're, we're talking about um, a nutritionist training up in the, the late 1990s. Um, anything to do with, oh, gee, I mean, paleo wasn't even on the, on the horizon back then as, as far as um, teaching goes. Everything was very mainstream. It was all about low fat and whole grains and, and all the other you know, sort of main nutritional dogma that we're, we're rejecting quite firmly now. Mm-hmm. But that, that was the science of the time. It's, to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't changed much in terms of what they're teaching people through the, the school that I went through, but that's part of the problem. Yeah, I would think that in sports medicine, you'd be more, um, more willing to adapt and advance because of the performance aspect you're not looking to just maintain. You're looking to help people get, you know, completely optimized and, you know, performance-driven. That they'd be a little more cutting edge, at least. Uh, that would be my my thought. Yeah, I, I think they are. I, I think the the all of the people involved with the, the sports fields, whether it's a, from a medical side of things or um, from nutrition exercise side of things, because you have that performance element you're constantly looking for an edge that someone else hasn't got is that you are prepared to test the boundaries clearly and, and we know from the 
um, the drug doping scene that you know people test those boundaries a little bit too far. But I mean, you, you've got a very a, a reasonably well mapped out um, area with which you can can work in. There's obviously limitations. There are certain areas that you can't go. But you know, if those areas haven't been well specified, then everything's up for grabs. So I, I think as far as pushing the limits on the nutritional side of things, trialing things that perhaps you will accept probably aren't good in terms of long-term health for an individual, but are great in terms of short-term performance, you're, you're quite prepared to give some of those those things a go and, and try things um, off-label as, as it were. You know, try, um, you know, if you're dealing with a rehab situation and, and you're just not getting anywhere, you might be prepared to try a rehab technique which is marginal but might actually work so yeah mm-hmm. I, I think that that field pushes the boundaries a little bit further than mainstream medicine main, mainstream nutrition which it as fields are very very conservative very conservative yeah unfortunately medicine is not necessarily or not at all food based it's medicine based yeah. <laughs> and that's what happens in the Elite athletes have taken a course of, um, uh, you know, illegal drugs, doping, and all the rest, and it's, you know, it's now in every sport. It's rather unfortunate. Uh, doesn't give a good um, guideline for a, a youngster that wants to get involved in any sport when the premier athletes in their sport are all dopers. Yeah, absolutely, and it makes it very difficult for uh, for people to try and decipher where the elite athletes are getting their benefit from it and and we try and push you know all the good nutrition things the the good sleep things you know, all of that that good solid stuff but and, but when you see an elite athlete performing so well there's always this question in your back of your mind is like are they just the one who is doing everything right and has optimized themselves to the absolute limit or are they taking a drug and it just makes it so difficult to cut through that and, and yeah. makes it very difficult to, to sell some of the the healthier messages that, that go with elite sport. Yeah, typically these people are pretty much just genetic freaks to begin with. But when you see incredible performance much later in their career, you know, that that's really odd. So, Yeah, to, to, a, to a degree, I think. Um, I, I think there's a bias within elite sport towards younger athletes in certain fields and, and as soon as we see an older athlete performing very well we go oh hello what are what are they on mm-hmm. but my experience within the, the cycling side of things um and and it kind of holds over to a lot of the other um, elite endurance sports as well is that you actually as a as an athlete don't start really performing very very well until at a, a much later age, and particularly you see it uh, quite a lot with female athletes. Um, and, and you've only got to look at the strength of the masters fields for some of these sports. And those masters athletes, and, and keeping in mind that a lot of them have only just kind of returned to a sport, or you know they've still got work and families and all those other things potentially detracting away from their performance. They are only a fraction of seconds away from you know, some of the, the the top elite times and the younger athletes. Um, and as a 40-year-old, if you think that uh, you're a fit 40-year-old and you're suddenly going to enter into the the Masters Cycling or Masters Triathlon or whatever and, and clean up some of these old guys, 
you've got another thing coming. They'll they'll hand your ass to you on a plate. It's it's very very competitive. Huh. They're very strong. Yeah. Yeah. So you are the paleo guy. So let's cover it a little bit. I've pretty much steered clear of paleo mostly on my show. Um, <laughs> but, to, um, to your benefit. To your benefit. Yeah. Well, I I glam onto things and then I feel like a dipshit later, you know. <laughs> and so I don't want to paint myself into a corner. But um, you're you're will you're you're with it. I mean, you are the paleo guy. That paleo guy. So I mean, you've you've gone in full bore what is so compelling about paleo what did you find what did it do for you and um how are you helping others with this paleo approach uh i I think in the the wider context it it gave me a lot of answers to niggling little questions that i had sitting in the background so i mean as i said i was i was very conventionally trained um and the the approach that i took um over a, a decade also of working um, as a both a personal trainer, nutritionist, and in rehab settings, I, I very much took that conventional approach. And it, in terms of the success and the results you'd get with people, it was very hit and miss. You know, you tell them to give up their butter and go on margarine and to eat low fat this, and you know, can have muffins as long as they were brand muffins, and uh, all the crappy advice I look back on now and just shake my head in shame. Um, and you could never figure out why didn't really work as well as what you'd hoped and certainly it wasn't working that well with my own health because I mean I, I wasn't I wasn't super unhealthy but I could just see this slow insidious deterioration of my health from you know my late 20s and, and through my 30s you know things like skin conditions and body fat slowly creeping up and um, sleep and stress levels and all those sorts of things. It's like, what am I doing wrong? It's like I'm doing everything by the book and I'm not getting as bad as what some people are, but I'm still not as healthy as others were too. And and I worked in an industry where most of the, the fitness industry was dominated by bodybuilders. And you, you look at what the bodybuilders were doing and they were advocating these low carbohydrate diets they were um you know telling people to stop eating bread and they take them off all the grains and they get them to do these long slow walks and they'd obviously focus on their strength training and they're doing doing all of these things and enjoying really great success now what would happen with those those people who were engaging those strategies they would inevitably stop doing them at some point because they would starve themselves down to you know, whatever state they're in for a bodybuilding show and then they jump back into pizza and ice cream and not doing an exercise and blow right back out again but all the time that they stuck to those strategies they actually did relatively relatively well and and so it got to a point where i was asking myself why why is it working for these people why why am i railing against these people and what they're doing and advocating my conventional approach which doesn't work particularly well and then this thing called paleo came along which I I looked at a little bit more closely after dealing with a a couple of uh, clients a couple of female cyclists who said that they couldn't eat carbohydrates and I was probably starting to become more and more skeptical of of my conventional training so and actually asking a a few more questions of it so I I went and bought a couple of books I bought a, a book called the paleo diet by Lauren Cordain and another one called the paleo diet for athletes and read through both of those and was kind of aghast at some of the references sitting in the air and 
then found a site called Mark's Daily Apple and started reading that and then started listening to a guy called Rob Wolf and so on and so forth um, and started playing around with my own my own health strategies and saw my health rapidly improve. And so suddenly all these answers started falling into place and it was, and looking through this larger evolutionary evolutionary context, suddenly all these answers started um, started opening up in front of me. So I, I guess that's where you, you kind of get to a tipping point and go, you're either all in or you're all out on this. And the, the information that was there was compelling enough and the results that were that I was seeing both in myself and, and people I was working with were compelling enough to go, right, we're all in on this. And so dive down the rabbit hole and you just get to a point, there's no going back. So Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So now you um you have a regular day job, um, but it, it is also in in the same field or industry? Yeah, I mean I am very very lucky um with with my day job. I work in, in corporate health. Uh, for a company called Synergy Health in New Zealand, and and around around about the time that I was starting to to look at all this paleo information, uh, I was already uh, part of my role with with Synergy Health was to uh, develop some of the resource material for going into businesses and, and educating um, employees mostly on things that they should be doing to keep them healthy, and then that would you know, supposedly have a, a flow on effect in terms of cost to the company. And so we were looking at things like uh, nutrition, and we were still relatively, I guess, mainstream in some of our uh, nutrition advice. But we were looking at things like sleep. So I'd go in depth onto the, the sleep research and, and you know, find a few interesting things there. Uh, we looked at sun exposure, and, and that was probably one of the key turning points for us as a, as a company, um, rather than just go into these corporates and, and parrot the um, cancer society's line on staying out of the sun we actually did our own independent research on it and found that hey there was this thing called vitamin d there was research being done in scandinavia showing that the indoor workers had the highest rates of melanoma not outdoor workers as as we thought that um, actually getting out in the middle of the day was probably the best time of the day to go out that there were differences between uva and uvb radiation in terms of cancer risk and we were finding all of these things that just were not public knowledge and we were confronted by it to a point of saying, what do we do here? Do we go in and, and present our independent research even though it conflicts with the public health information? Or do we just toe the line? So we decided that we were going to present our own independent research on it. Once we kind of, we'd broken through that initial hesitancy of doing that in terms of the, the sun exposure side of things, it became a lot easier for us to do it with the nutrition side of things. And, and we grew in confidence with our ability to go out and challenge the likes of the, the New Zealand Heart Foundation and our Ministry of Health guidelines and those sorts of things. Uh, we, we grew in confidence on the ba on the back of this growing paleo movement of some of the, the great minds that were analyzing some of the, the data out there and putting their own spin on, on things. So um, as a result of that, for probably the last three or four years, we've, we've been very much a, a paleo-based or evolutionary um, science-based company uh, going out and suggesting that if, if people want to look after their health in a workplace, that they need to adopt some of these evolutionary-minded strategies, such as changing your diet, such as not sitting down all day, as you know, getting sleep, getting good um, healthy movement levels, looking after socialization, and you know, all, all the, the basic, I guess, 
uh, tenants that are accepted within this this paleo movement. So so we, we've been very much pioneering in, on the New Zealand front in that regard. And as, as best we can tell, there are not many, if any, other uh, corporate health companies doing what we do uh, globally. I, we haven't found anyone else who's, who's going out to yeah. companies and presenting this approach. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a very progressive um, you're you're the you're running Rob Wolf's risk assessment program before he came up with his risk assessment program. <laughs> yes, yes, pretty much. Um, I mean, no, no no disrespect to, to Rob, it was it was great to kind of hear him uh, talk about that at AHS last year and, and what they're doing. But um, to to be fair, we bit him to the punch probably about two years before he ran it. So, and I'm guessing you're getting great results. We we are in as much as people are prepared to take that information and run with it. So sure, it's, right, right, it's right. like anything else. You, all, all you can do is, is put the information out there and go, look, here it is. Here's an alternative to probably what you think you know and what, what you've heard. If you're prepared to give it a go, we think that it will work for you and you'll benefit from it greatly. And, and in terms of those who have done it, the feedback has been phenomenal. We, we see exactly the same same feedback that I'd get from working with individuals in terms of uh, how it's altered their life. But there are always going to be people who are still really skeptical of it. You can present all the evidence in the world. You can present it with as much authority as you like, but people are still going to be very skeptical of it. They see it as being hard. There's social acceptance issues of doing something that's different to what everyone else is doing. So, yeah, people kind of pick and choose. They'll, They'll pick bits off. They might decide that they'll all... Um, become more conscious about their sugar intake and lower it down but they won't give it up altogether or they'll do something about their sleep or they might get a standing desk in the office but so that they'll do little bits and pieces and they'll get as much benefit as they they as, as effort they put in but um, the, the ones who, who, who dive right down the rabbit hole with us they're the ones who give us the good feedback and say yeah this has been life-changing mm-hmm. yeah this is a very this is probably the most common thread in any online discussions is trying to reach people, trying to help people. And I just tell people all the time, just stop helping everyone. Just cut it out. Take care of yourself. Take care of you, your wife and kids. And Yeah, and that, that's the exact same message that uh, that I preach, probably probably more at a, a personal level than certainly through my, my day job. But um, you, know, you, you get people come up to and go, how can I, how can I present this information to my friends or my wider family how can i change them they won't listen to me what can i do what's the one magic thing it's like there is no magic thing if they don't want to listen to you they don't want to listen to you you focus on yourself you change your own life you you be the example and perhaps they might get to a point where they go hey i'll I'll give this a go too but don't waste any time or emotional energy trying to change other people when they don't want to change because You'll just want to go and bash your head against the wall. Yeah, you'll see the successful people in this paleo world. And by successful, I mean people with a high profile or that are running um, nice programs, blogs, websites, what have you. These are people who do their run their program. People sign on and get great results, and the message spreads, and you know they they grow, but they're not stuck in a rut helping their neighbor. That doesn't want to participate. So what I'm thinking of is like whole nine. So you're a you're a consultant um, with the whole nine program. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, 
I'm, I'm listed as one of their consultants, but um, my, my partner Anastasia and I have recently partnered up with Dallas and Melissa and, and we run kind of whole nine South Pacific. So um, do their sort of seminar gig um, around okay. the Australian New Zealand regions. So you found something there that you thought would help you in your, this, so this would be your personal practice. Um, what's going on at whole nine that's so intriguing? It was the, the whole nine approach, and, and I guess the, the appeal of the whole nine approach was that uh, Dallas and Melissa Hartwick, they don't pull any punches, they don't take any bullshit, they don't try and fluffy stuff up around the fringes, they just call it what it is and go, here's an approach, it works, it's hard, but it's not that hard that you can't do it, suck it up, princess, and, get, and go for it. And that kind of, that appeal to my personality and my nature, I'm... I'm fairly black and white in that regard it's like if you want to do it do it and do it properly otherwise don't bother and so their whole nine approach there and their whole 30 approach had a had a strong appeal so i was i was very lucky when i came over to uh los angeles for the first ancestral health symposium to meet dallas and melissa in person and, and amongst um you know, the likes of the mark systems and the rob wolf so very much people that are I'd kind of looked up to for the work that they were doing. And, and as a result of, of meeting them, striking up a friendship, um, again, kind of sharing some common thoughts and, and values, uh, it kind of got to the point where, for me, rather than trying to invent the wheel in New Zealand, reinvent the wheel in New Zealand and, and come up with my own you know, version of, of things, it was like, why not just take the whole nine stuff? It's all there. The, these guys have done it. And you know, I'm 99% on board with what they're saying and doing so um as it transpired we were able to kind of sign up and, and mm-hmm. run the whole on on south pacific gigs that's good it's reassuring to me because i probably give no no paleo guru more shit than dallas on twitter <laughs> i'm always saying some stupid shit to him and, and, and D- dallas is pretty thick-skinned and, but and that's the that's the best part is that his responses are um calm collected they're matter of fact um he's like read this check you know um he doesn't react he responds appropriately so i have great respect i just see some things that they post and i'm like kind of scratch my head but yeah you know there's, there's a method to their, their madness I, I think there's some of their posts and some of the things that they put out are going to be very jarring for people they're very challenging they uh, people are, are hoping like hell that they can you know have have their paleo cake and eat it too, um, but some well, of the that's every that, paleo blogger, by the way. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's that's where I, I think you know the likes of Dallas and Melissa have set themselves aside from the majority, and and that they're saying no, you, you can't recreate paleo cupcakes and paleo brownies and, and still expect to get that. Yeah, if you look result. at anyone, so, if you look at anyone struggling with paleo and check their blog, they've refigured yeah. how to bake every single treat in the world and yeah and, and that's one of the things that kind of frustrates me and, and pisses me off no end but about the whole paleo community is that uh, you get these people kind of whinging on their blogs or whatever other form of social media that you know they're not feeling the magic they're not getting the same results and you can go back through their blog because they're also the types of people that document every last movement of their day and see exactly how they live their life exactly what they're eating uh, they're staying up late. They're you know, trying to recreate their crappy life in a paleo format. 
I mean, there's all these cardinal mistakes that they're making. And the likes of Dallas and Melissa and, and myself and Anastasia and a few others call people out on that. And and people don't like that. People don't like being call, called out in, in such a way. So they, they certainly haven't made any friends um, in terms of their approach with, with some people. Uh, I'm pretty much the same. Anastasia yeah. and myself are going to be pretty much the same in terms of what we do. But that's the way it is. We call it the way it is. Yeah. We, we see the best results from the people who take all, all the major factors and commit themselves to it, and yeah. we can't argue with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know paleo is big now because there's a shit ton of anti-paleo people out there, mostly former hmm. paleos or paleoite does whatever names, um, and that are like poo-pooing paleo, calling it limiting, brainwashed, this and that. So I... I I kind of go down the rabbit hole too much and read some of that stuff, but I have to check myself and yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're perspective. Yeah, and, and 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 as you as you say, I mean, I think it's just a largely function of the the popularity and, and success of the the whole sort of paleo scene that you is that it's a natural tall poppy thing, and as soon as something kind of gets kind of too big for its boots, some people are going to turn around and, and try and cut it down pretty quickly. And there'll be any number of reasons for that, whether they've been uh, burned or scorned or it hasn't worked for them the way that they you know, wanted it to, even though they didn't actually do it properly, or um, they're under threat because the, the very thing which they as a guru have been promoting is about to kind of get you know, sucked into um, paleo. Why would you go and pay um, you know, someone a subscription or a fee for getting a, a high-protein uh, low glycemic index diet when paleo is largely open source and you can kind of go and get exactly the same thing for mm-hmm. for free so and, and people get very threatened by that so that, you, you try and stay away from it as, as best you can but occasionally it, it, very much when you're, you're involved in twitter someone will put a link up saying you, you've got to go and read this and in a week moment you'll go and read it and then mm-hmm. I want saw- to hulk smash the computer afterwards <laughs> I saw an interesting YouTube video of you. I don't know where it was or, or what the setting was, um, but you kind of set food aside a bit and really focused um, a lot. It's just a 15-minute talk on um, sleep and the importance of sleep. I hear this a lot, but I yeah. go always dismiss it. In a recent experience I had with some medication, like opened my eyes and you kind of actually talked me through it on Twitter. You told me what I was experiencing is completely normal for people who have run themselves ragged basically um, with cortisol and all these things. So let's talk about sleep for a minute. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that video in particular was, uh, that was shot at the uh, low carb down under uh, seminar series. So um, Jimmy Moore did a, did a tour of New, uh, New Zealand. He did a tour of Australia um, and we were invited to go and, and talk at uh, uh, one of the sessions in in Brisbane. Um, and it, I was invited to talk at a time that I was really falling out of favour with the whole macronutrient ratio th- ratio thing. I'm I'm not a big fan of the whole low carb dogma. I, I don't really kind of get too much involved in that, that yeah, these days. Yeah, I noticed so, that in your talk. You were yeah, so it was, a bit at the end there. Yeah, right? so it was, it, was, it was kind of like, how, how do we go and, and talk to a bunch of low-carb zealots uh, about how a lot of the things that they think are attributable to 
carbohydrates can be attributable to other things in their lifestyle. And we know, I know in particular through the work that uh, I do with my day job, that people's sleep is atrocious. Their, their sleep quality, their sleep duration is is a shocker. And and you could see in that video that you know, some of the evidence that, that I went through along those lines. And now part of the problem with the disturbances in, in sleep and, and some of the lifestyle factors that go with it is that you see this uptick in cortisol levels. Now cortisol on a, a normal day-to-day basis is the hormone that wakes you up. Uh, it's the hormone that you get a good burst of in the morning and it, it you know, turns the lights on on your, your head and keeps you functioning as a relatively normal and sane human being. Uh, sometimes we, we try and augment that with a cup of coffee in the morning um, and coffee increases your cortisol levels and that, that's why it's a, a stimulant. And so seeing your issues that you were having around sleep when you were taking a drug, which is basically a, a cortisol derivative. Yeah, cortisol pre- and, prednisone. Yeah. Prednisone. So prednisone is a, a synthetic analog of cortisol. And so seeing the things that you are experiencing in terms of your sleep, in terms of your um, hunger and food um, cravings, those sorts of things, like you are, you are experiencing in a very um, concentrated and condensed fashion what most people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. because whilst you have prednisone circulating at high levels around your, your body as a, as a medication, a lot of these people have got cortisol circulating around their bodies um, at high levels as a result of their messed up lifestyles that they're, they're living. So it, it gave you and me, like watching your tweets, it, it gave us both a very valuable insight into just how powerful that hormone is yeah, and I, how much it can mm-hmm. mess people up over the long term. I just watched that video today of you speaking and everything you touched on uh, was I, with sleep deprivation was like it was textbook exactly like my diary during that three weeks that I was on the medicine, just uh, well the insomnia and then the carb cravings, in- insane carb cravings. And I'm glad I had a community around me to tell me that this is not the time to listen to your body. You, you know, you don't actually yeah. need those carbs. That you know, uh, this is one of my pet peeves. Listen to your body, because you'd have to be pretty damn well trained on how to listen to a body. Oh, uh, people, it's a bad of, advice most, to an average person. Most people just don't have the self-awareness to be able right. to lock on to some of those signals, let alone be able to interpret them uh, accurately. So you can imagine someone who is you know, in some sort of messed up emotional state due to sleep deprivation, and you suddenly turn around to them and say, oh, listen to what your body's telling them. Well, their body's going to tell them to go out and bury themselves face first in a big pile of cake um yeah you know, yep you, you can't send them down that pathway you, you've got to try and as best you can establish just exactly what some of those signals are and try and interpret those signals for them and try and give them some information and then advice on how they are best to react or not react to those some some of those signals that they're receiving but you just don't go oh, well listen to your body and you do you do what you think feels right. Yeah. yeah, I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to your talk. It, it, it was excellent. It's only 15 minutes long. It's power-packed. It's great information. 
especially on the sleep aspect. I, I really love that. And then I love that you were uh, bold enough to actually point out at the end of the talk that, hey, VLC, very low carb, it, it is not necessarily the answer. Well, that, that's the real moronic thing amongst the, all of this information is that you know, we, we know that for whatever, uh, for whatever frustrating reason, as, as ready as people are to make dietary changes and exercise changes, people just will not go to bed at night for any number of good reasons and for largely piss poor reasons that they just won't pull the pin on the day and go and turn the lights out and get their ass in the bed. But that has a massive, massive flow-on effect in terms of how their metabolism functions. And so people who who are trying this low-carb diet or very low-carb diet will get maybe a degree of success but not get all of the success which they expect to get because they're just not going to bed early enough. But their interpretation of their lack of success is, oh, my carbohydrate intake is not low enough. So they'll just keep dialing it down and dialing it down and going lower and lower and lower with the effect that that will probably eventually just push their cortisol levels through the roof, screw their sleep up and make things even worse for them. And yet they still interpret that as, oh, it's a food thing. They're trying to constantly fix non-food problems with a food approach. And it's it's just moronic. And you can point that out to people until you blow it in the face and people sure, just sure. don't care. Yeah. Yeah, they're just not doing it right enough, you know, with the food thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've been through it a little bit. I've tried all kinds of shit with my diet and just for fun. And um, yeah, that the low carb thing it it did it did work, uh, or even very low carb did work quite well for me um, as far as weight weight loss goes. But then you you've got to be flexible after that. You you've got to just be ready to just go in whatever whatever path you know you need to to go. To uh, yeah, the, the low carb thing is is a fantastic tool. Don't get me wrong, I'm not, I don't, I don't dismiss it entirely. I think for for some people in the right context, it's a very appropriate way to go. And I I think just generally, like eating a a normal paleo templated diet is is relatively low carb for most people compared to what they're. Um, historical diets been anyway so yeah if you compare it to the western diet or what we call the standard american diet it is low carb but it's not low carb according to the vlcers definition no no and there will be some people maybe a minority maybe the majority who knows who will benefit from going down that vlc pathway and of those who benefit from it some will have to probably remain on that pathway for life mm-hmm. by by virtue of whatever's going on with their metabolisms or um, you know, for any number of reasons. Where I think people make the mistake is that they apply that VLC approach as um, a short-term fix but are fearful of going back in the opposite direction. And I don't think VLC in the long term for everyone is, is the way to go. I, I think you are going to have to be flexible. You are going to have to put in place other strategies which will keep the momentum going that you generate with a VLC approach. But when you put those other strategies in place, you might need to rethink how you're going to do your fueling. So yeah. one, of, one of the things that we see is a, 
again, people will, are quite happy to lose a lot of fat through um, restricting their carbohydrate intake. And a, a replacement strategy for that is to start increasing their muscle mass levels, to start getting involved in some sort of resistance type training to, to rebuild some of the muscles, which they probably haven't got there as a result of their previous life and some of this VLC work. Yeah, because you can actually they, start losing lean ma- lean mass, right? Yeah, at some so, point, so, right? yeah you, you will get to a, a, a point and you know, most people kind of don't tend to worry about that side of things too much. But in terms of longer term sustainability, replacing some of those muscle fibers, rebuilding some of those muscle fibers is a very, very key approach. But to do that, you are going to probably have to stick some carbohydrate back in your gob to allow that to, to happen. Mm-hmm. And as a result of going back down that pathway of, of eating a little bit more carbohydrate whilst you're rebuilding your lean body mass, your body composition might not be as lean as what you had on a VLC approach. You are, you will probably put on a few percentage points of body fat. Mm-hmm. For those who are so freaked out about that, they just can't go down that pathway. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're just yeah. mind-blocked by it. So. Yeah, again, we'll get, yeah, you need to kind of separate health and longevity versus uh, just exactly how you look like. Every inch of what fat is under your skin, and you know, you're a genetic freaking cesspool. You might not be completely fixable. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's the case. Cross. I mean, I, I know with my own body composition, if I ran my carbs really, really low. I could probably lean out quite nicely in the short term and and you know, look really jacked, but I feel really bloody miserable. I wouldn't be performing as well as what I currently um, do in terms of my um, gym work and, and training work that I do. So I know that I feel a lot better and perform a lot better at a few percentage points um, of body fat higher than probably what I, I could be if I went on a VLC approach. Um, I'm not about to end up on the cover of Men's Health magazine anytime soon, so I really couldn't give a fat rat's ass whether um, I'm down at five percent body fat, right, um, right, or not. So, yeah. So, and and, and, mm-hmm. and I've, I've said before some of the, uh, I think I've said this on on Twitter before that some of the, the strategies that are probably best put in place in the long term are the strategies that revolve around rebuilding your body, um, and you need to fuel your body and rest your body appropriately to allow that to happen. Whereas most people are just focused on getting rid of the body fat and some of the strategies put in place just to remove body, body fat are also counter to actually rebuilding and repairing your body over the, the yeah, long term. Yeah. So. I'm glad you just mentioned that about the, the, the ridiculous focus on body fat. When one thing I discovered as an experiment, I started working out one hour a week. Um, so four hours a month, and I just went to a local, um, it was a combination of kettlebell and qigong class. So Ooh, we, we just did joint mobility yep. uh, for 15 to 20 minutes. We did about 15 minutes of um, kettlebells, and then we just did a qigong cool down kind of thing. And it was all joint mobility based. I learned so much from that experience. I only went, I think, um, 16 times. And even when I, I came back from a break, the instructor was like, look at your body. He's like, it's incredible, the change in your build and your mental attitude. 
So it, it was it was pretty profound. And I found the most interesting thing wasn't the weights or the kettlebells, was the mobility, joint mobility. I found very intriguing. I'd like to explore it more. Do you have any experience with joint mobility training, these type of exercises? Um, you know, um, what is it, fascia? And, you know, you can actually turn your fascia over in your joints. Yeah, it's, it's not something I've, I've got a, a huge amount of, of knowledge on, Brian. It's not um, not a, an area that I've been readily involved in okay. in re- recent times. I mean, most, most of my work has been involved on the nutrition side of things, and, and I'm more, um, I guess, more a strength coach by nature with the, the physical mm-hmm. exercise and some things that I do. Um, but I mean, I've, I've become more aware of the joint mobility uh, side of things and in recent years and you can see you know from those people who engage in um, those sorts of exercise exercises and there's there's many many different pathways to joint mobility that they actually perform a lot better and 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 i guess there's a, a within this wider movement there's a move away from you know needing to look you know absolutely jacked and ripped and and being more functional in terms of your movement and your your strength, and that's where that kind of that joint mobility becomes very very important to allow you to do some of the things on a day to day basis that you, mm-hmm. know, you might want to do. So. I'm I'm convinced that it it, it is incredible for um, for everything in your body. I don't know, you know, circulation, mental clarity. I don't know what, oh. but getting your joints to work properly is profound. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I presented on uh, last year at Ancestral Health was um, how we focus our time that that we have available for developing ourselves at a physical level. And traditionally, uh, endurance training has, has been associated with health. So you know, people go out and they do their running and their cycling. They spend hours upon hours doing these things. So you, you take someone like a cyclist who will – um, you know, go out and maybe ride for 400, 500 kilometers a week or something ridiculous like that. Some of these are very, very high high mileages. But you, you think about the position that you're sitting in for that period of time. And, and yes, it might develop your heart and lungs, but think about what it's doing in terms of your joint mobility and, and freedom of movement when you actually step off off the bike. Yeah, you've just then, designed yourself to ride a bike. Not yeah, be a human exactly. on Earth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then, now we've, we've kind of moved away from some of that, but we've replaced these you know, very long endurance training sessions with lots of high frequency, supposedly functional, um, high intensity workouts. At, I was going to say this is what I gyms. see all the time on Twitter: hit, hit training. I don't know what it yeah, is. It's, but... Well, it, it's, it's supposed to be high intensity interval training, but um, you know, one of my pet peeves is that. Uh, going out and coming up with all these weird and wonderful ways to keep your heart rate up for, for 20 to 30 minutes at a stretch without taking a break is not actually interval training. It's not what the, the science is telling us to do. It's just cardio but, training? Yeah, it's <laughs> just cardio training through burpees and double-unders or whatever other stupid way of getting your heart rate up is. Uh, so, it, again, it's, it's not overly overly functional. So we, we need to look at it from a... From an evidence-based standpoint, the evidence suggests that probably, in t- both in, certainly in terms of performance, but certainly in terms of uh, health as well, that we should dedicate most of our time to 
doing these sort of slower movement type activities. So doing lower intensity type work and only dedicate a very small amount of time to the very high intensity, puffy, puffy type work that people get involved in. And when you translate that, that research into days per week, it really only works out to probably maybe one up to potentially three days a week that you really need to be beating the, the bejesus out of yourself. The rest of the time you can engage in these lower intensity um, exercises of which you would include your movement development and mm -hmm. joint mobility work. So you can go and do, uh, you can go for walks, you can go for easy hikes, you can go for bike rides, or you can go and do some yoga, or we can go and do some Pilates, or we can go and do whatever else that um, develops joint mobility. I've, I've recently picked up um, an adult gymnastics class, so I use that in terms of some of my joint mobility and um, additional strength work. You can go and do a, a small amount of um, strength training on top of that, so the likes of what you did with your, your kettlebells. And, and the minimal effective dose is a lot less than what people think it is. You don't mm. need to go and beat yourself up four to five days a week, six days a week at, uh, from some of the things that we've heard. We, we get people come up to us at the end of seminars saying, oh, I go and do um, wads at the gym uh, two, twice a day for six days a week, <laughs> right. and I, I don't sleep particularly well. What do you think I should do with my diet? And, and you just go, oh, what? <laughs> Yeah. Well, what are these people doing? Like, so unless the, the evidence, you know, the evidence if, if someone's suggest. paying you three million dollars a year as an athlete, then go for it. Lose yeah. sleep for five years and just run yourself ragged. Make your fifteen mil and move on. But as a regular Joe, easy. <laughs> so, so, like, you, you keep your you keep your diet well dialed in. You go to bed. You get a decent amount of sleep. You give yourself the minimal effective dose of that higher intensity work, whether it's a, with a strength bias or a speed bias or whatever else. And, and that minimal effective dose is way, way less than what people give it credit for. And then you spend the rest of the time just developing yourself at that low end and off and amongst that low end work, as, as I said, can be a lot of joint mobility. And I think you'll be a, a healthier specimen of a human being overall for, for going down that pathway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I would highly recommend anyone check out Qigong. I mean, I know it's Wu, it's Asian, therefore it can't be science. You know, it's it's ancient <laughs> Eastern, so yeah. every any MD would poo-poo it. But um, it's not only is it joint mobility, it's a motion meditation. So you're getting a lot done. I mean, a lot to your to your entire mind and body. So I I found it very intriguing. I even have some DVDs. That um, I let the kids watch and they fool around with it. I'm I'm far less critical of that stuff than you know, probably what I've, I have been in the past, because I've learned to see the common ground across a lot of those different movement patterns. Um, and so so what is it that that movement pattern has in common with everything else that everyone else finds works for for them, and it is full range of movements, self-awareness, unplugging from you know, the world for you know, 45 minutes, whatever that you're, you're doing it for. And, and that is of as much benefit as the actual specific type of movement itself in terms of your overall health. Mm -hmm. So let's cover 
quickly. We're approaching an hour here. Um, yep. What are your some of your you know your number one guide points for someone to achieve better sleep? Uh, what what are some of the things that a person uh, should start thinking about and take into their daily lives beyond food? I don't want to talk about food anymore. No, <laughs> I heard too. Um, the the biggest thing that we try and get people to to think about with their sleep is that the sleep process or the, the process that you go through to ensure a good night's sleep doesn't start at the point that you jump into bed. And that's the one of the biggest mistakes that we see people make is that they don't really think about their sleep until they're about to jump into bed and then they go, oh, my God, it's bedtime. I need to get some sleep. How am I going to get some sleep? I hope I get some good sleep tonight because I'm so tired. And then they go through this process of just talking themselves up into a state of anxiety and then wonder why the hell they don't get a, a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. So so we really encourage people to think about their sleep a lot further out than just the time before going to bed. So something like caffeine, which has uh, you know, such a profound effect on, on sleep quality, that might be something that you look at um, six to eight hours before you're even due to go into go to bed. Like, is, is it time to cut my caffeine intake out because it still may have an impact on my sleep uh, in eight hours' time? So you start thinking along those lines. We know that setting that good uh, cortisol rhythm um, is very important to sleep. So making sure that you're getting the bulk of your cortisol spiked early in the morning, and that's contingent on you getting some really bright light in your eyes. And that tends to resynchronize the circadian rhythms uh, to allow you to be awake at the right time, to allow you to be a, a sleepy at the right time. Have, have you? And, let me interrupt you real quick. Have you any experience yep. with any light therapy devices? Have you seen any benefit from these? First, people say, we're coming into summer now, so the sun's easily available. But I know from this past winter, my experience, what about a light therapy device? I, I think it's got some benefit. I've, I've not tried it myself, and I've been very tempted to... Uh, through uh, this winter Um, we're only just kind of at the point now where it's pretty dark in the morning but um, a lot of people swear by that that light therapy and and as best i can understand from my reading around it is that you should should get some good benefit from um, exposing yourself to that bright light at the appropriate time you certainly wouldn't want to be exposing yourself to that sort of light uh, you know, late in the day because mm-hmm. that's going to disturb your your natural rhythms. But so, if you live in yeah. if you live in a latitude where it's it's still dark at eight o'clock in the morning or, or whenever you're trying to be awake and functional, then putting yourself under that bright light will be very beneficial if you're finding your your overall sleep rhythms okay. being disturbed. Right. So so taking that longer term approach, so getting people to get out in the morning to to rip their Joe Cool glasses off their face while they're commuting in the morning to get the bright light in their eyes to reset the circadian rhythms to, as I say, to, to watch um, their caffeine intake of you know, six or eight hours out, to watch their blue light exposure when they get home at night so they're not uh, sitting with their face pushed up against their laptop or with their smartphone at nine o'clock at night, um, again, disturbing their natural hormone um, balance. And, and unfortunately, well, or otherwise, in the background of all of that, some of the, the nutrition stuff is is very important too. So, so so that's the pathway that we generally take people 
down there's there's a lot of interplay with with daily stresses and those sorts of things and and getting people to deal with those but often they're they're more a longer term approach Mm -hmm. the easy short-term stuff is get some bright light in the eyes kill the caffeine at an appropriate time during the day um and don't stuff your face uh into the computer and and we get people to start there and, and make changes sounds simple enough yeah should be yeah <laughs> this has been a lot of fun and um you weren't uh, entirely misanthropic i mean you entertained me uh, for an hour so <laughs> well I, i'll probably seem to be uh quite open and, and chatty with people if i'm interesting brian so uh, <laughs> I, I, i'm very much i'm misanthropic in, in terms of if i'm not interested or i don't like you or don't want anything to do with you then i won't talk to you so. right right all right yeah. <laughs> fair enough it's been a lot of fun, Brian. It was. It was excellent. I thank you for your time. Um, I'll put all the plugs and give all that promo stuff on my own time. So I thank you and um, have yourself a great day. And I got to go to bed. You do that. All right. Stuff, Brian. Bye now. Do it again. Bye. Right. Bye.